You're listening to a sermon originally recorded by Schweitzer United Methodist Church in Springfield, Missouri. Check us out online at sumc.co. And if this sermon blessed you, be sure to share it with someone else. Thank you so much for listening. Now, on to the message. We are uh, in a series, part four or five of a series called Navigating Change, because we as a church, we are in a season of change. You have a new pastor. I'm at a new church. There's change for all of us. And so we are starting my time here with uh, a series, a short series talking about change, how to navigate change. But, but not just how to navigate change. The bigger question is really how do Christians navigate change? How do, how do followers of Jesus, believers in resurrection navigate change? Not just how do normal people navigate change. We want to wrestle with this through the lens of, of those who profess and believe in resurrection and, and the power of God to to lead our lives. And so what does that mean for us as we navigate change? And, and to guide this discussion, we're reading through a book of the Bible that's all about change. We're just reading through it and, and learning the lessons that this book of the Bible teaches us. We're reading through the book of Philippians because Philippians uh, is all about change. It's a, it's a letter that was written by the Apostle Paul to this local church that he started. And he's writing this letter because he's been arrested. He's in a Roman prison. And uh, he's, he's writing this letter basically as a goodbye letter. And so they're going through all kinds of change, and he's, he's writing this letter, and we're, we're just wrestling with the questions. Okay, as he writes this to them, this, these lessons to them about uh, how they're going to navigate this change without him, what does this teach us about how we navigate change as well? Because think about what they're feeling and thinking as he's writing this. I mean, he's their founding pastor. He is the one who brought the gospel to them. He is the one who has comforted them and encouraged them and inspired them, and now he's in a Roman prison and they have to have all kinds of questions about the future, don't they? they they've got to be wondering all kinds of things. What's, what's going to happen next? What, what does the future look like? How are we going to survive without Paul? And, and he writes this letter, this, this goodbye letter to, to pave the way and to teach them. So we're just reading through this letter and looking at, at what these lessons are, these principles are that we can, we can learn about change. So today we're going to be in chapter 3. We're going to read through most of the chapter today in chapter 3. We're picking up really where we left off last week. So each week we're just working our way through this book. And so we're going to read through most of chapter 3, and here's how it goes. Chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Paul writes this. He says, Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. Now, pay attention to that word there. Rejoice in the Lord. And think about that for just a second. Paul is writing this from a Roman prison. And he writes, rejoice in the Lord. In the Lord. I, I just, I don't know, I find that to be so inspiring that this is what he writes, even when the conditions of his life look like that. So rejoice in the Lord. He goes on, he says, It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. Kind of some harsh words here, and we'll talk about this in just a second as this becomes more clear what he's getting at. Verse 3 For it is we who are the circumcision. We who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. Now, as any good sermon on change you know, should include, here, let's talk about circumcision for a few moments here. Because <laughs> he's, what he says here is very important to what he's going to say next. And what he says next is an incredible principle about navigating change. But before we get to that principle, we have to understand what he's getting at in this first part. So here's a tip. Anytime you're reading the Bible and you come across the word circumcision, especially the New Testament, really that's just code for Jewish or non-Jewish. 
That's really what, what this is about. So we hear the circumcision, this is, this is Jewish. By the way, if you're here for, with kids and someone's wondering what that word means, you can just tell them later because we're not going to get into that right now. But it's Jewish versus non-Jewish because here was the controversy of the first century. Right here was this question here. Do Gentiles, that is non-Jewish people, who become Christians, do they have to become circumcised? That was the controversy of the early, early church. This is why Paul wrote a lot of his letters. Galatians was written about this question. And, and, and on, for us, this seems kind of silly that we would be asking this quite like this is the controversy of the, of the very early church, but this was the controversy for them because really this was about a deeper question, not just what do Gentiles have to do, but really is about a deeper question such as this, what does it take to be saved? That's really what this question is about. And specifically, it's about this. Do we have to obey the Old Testament commandments to be saved? Because the Old Testament commandments are that, that Jewish men are circumcised, and this is how you belong to the covenant. So this is really what it's about. And, and I guess maybe even a deeper level, kind of like you just kind of trace the questions backwards. Maybe the, the biggest question that this is really about is, is this. Is good behavior a condition of salvation? Does God save us because we are good? This is really the question that Paul's starting off here with. Does God save us because we are good? This is what he means when he says uh, confidence in the flesh. That's the word we read there, confidence in the flesh. Can we be so good? Can we be so moral? Can we have our life together so much? Can we know the Bible so well? Can we be so religious that we can place our confidence in our ability? That's what he's getting at here with this idea of confidence in the flesh. Can, can we be so good at that? Can we be so good at following God that we can do this? And so he's talking about this confidence in the flesh. He goes on here. Let's keep reading. And here's what he says about himself and this confidence of the flesh, this, this self-ability to follow God and to be accepted by God, to have eternal life because of his self-ability. He goes on, he says, if someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, if someone else thinks that they are so morally good that they can just trust in themselves, he says, I've, I've got more reasons. I've got more reasons. He says, I was circumcised on the eighth day. That's what Jewish boys were done, what happened to them. Of the people of Israel, the, pri uh, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. He's like, no one can compare their resume to my resume. My resume will always win. But this is all the reasons why I could be confident in the flesh. But listen to what he says next. These next few verses are so powerful. Verse 7. He says, But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider, listen to this next word here, everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I might gain Christ. Now, hold on just a second. When he says everything and all, what, what is the everything and the all that he's referring to? He's referring to his religious life, the, his religious life. Like, I consider my religious life, all the religious things that I did for God. He's like, I consider all of those things because that's what his confidence in the flesh is. I consider all my religious duty and obligation and religious ritual, I consider all of that a loss compared to Christ. And not just a loss. Did you catch the word he used here? Garbage. Which, by the way, is a bit of a mistranslation from the Greek. The word here in the Greek is not garbage, but is more like excrement. You can kind of get what Paul's getting at here. There's this graphic, over-the-top comparison that if you fill your life with anything other than Christ, it's like garbage, except not really garbage. That's what it's 
like when you compare anything, fill your life with anything other than Christ. And so he, he goes on here. So I, I want to know Christ. I want to be found in him, verse 9, not having a righteousness uh, that comes from the law, not just what I can do, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. He says, I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and to participate in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Now, we're going to keep reading here for just a second, but I just want to pull this out because I, I, I love, love, love Philippians chapter 3. I, I love this. And, and the reason I, I love Philippians 3, these verses we just read, is, is I don't know what it's like for you, but this is my story, what I just read in these lines. This is, this is my life I just read in these lines. You know, sometimes in church, uh, we talk about testimonies. And uh, people have these testimonies and they share their salvation stories. And sometimes people uh, hear a salvation story that someone shares and, and, and we think to ourselves, oh man, my story doesn't sound as good as their story. Have you ever heard a salvation story? It's like, I was an atheist and uh, I didn't believe and, and then I did and then I found Christ and he opened my, like, and you're like, wow, that's amazing. He was an atheist or I had these addictions. Wow, he had addictions. And, and sometimes we hear stories like that. It's like, well, that's not my story. But what I see here in Philippians 3, this is, this is more like me because I see in Philippians 3 what it is that God has rescued me from. I, I'm not the person who was an atheist or had addictions or had that kind of you know, story before I met Jesus. I, I was a church kid. I grew up in the church. I'm a product of the church. First United Methodist Church of Joplin. I was baptized as a baby. My parents brought me forward. Probably, I don't know, the pictures, you know, those baptismal baby pictures. You got like the, the dress for some reason. They, they put people in and they baptize them. And I, I, you know, I was baptized as a baby. Uh, I grew up going to church. One of my earliest memories is accepting Jesus to come live in my heart. I don't know what I thought that meant when I was like four years old, but I remember praying with my preschool teacher for Jesus to come and live in my heart. Like I, I was a church kid. I did vacation Bible school. I did Sunday school. I did youth group. I did the camps and all of the things that Christian kids do. I went to a Christian college even after that. And I did all of the things Christian kids do. And, and, and I, I realized, like, so I hear stories sometimes that people share their salvation stories. Like, wow, mine's nothing like that. Until I read Philippians 3 and I realize, oh, no, this is my story. Philippians 3 is my story because I see what God rescued me from. And maybe it's not like a wild life because I didn't lead a wild life before I knew Jesus, but what I see that God rescued me from was he rescued me from, from religion. He rescued me from being confident in myself. He rescued me from thinking that I was good enough by myself. That's what he rescued me from. And he showed me that when I opened my life to him and I opened my, my heart to him and I received just simply the gift that God loved me, and that was it. The, the gift that the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ was all that was required of me to have a relationship with God, right? Accepted that truth for myself when I was 16 years old. My life changed because all of a sudden I realized that what Jesus offered me was so much better than anything I was going to find anywhere else. What Jesus offered me actually fulfilled me. What Jesus offered me actually satisfied my thirst. And, and everything else compared to that, you know what it's like? Garbage, except not really garbage, <laughs> That's what it's like. This is what Jesus does is he satisfies our life. And so Paul, as he's writing this, he's, he's writing this, this message here about, about what are you filling your life with? Because you can fill your life with all kinds of things. Philippians 3 is what are you filling your life with? Because you can fill your life with all kinds of things. You can fill your life with Christ who will satisfy you and will 
bring you peace and joy in your life, or you can fill your life with anything else. You can chase after so many things in life. You can chase after Christ. You can chase after success. You can chase after career. You can chase after money. You can chase after relationships. You can chase after being liked. You can chase after comfort and ease. You can chase after so many things in your life. But when you compare those things to Christ, all of those things are going to be like garbage. Nothing will compare to Him. He is the only one that's going to satisfy you. And so Paul's bringing us into this question of, of reflection, really. What, what are you chasing after in your life other than Christ? Because as you fill your life with those other things, you're going to be left wanting, which, of course, is an important lesson to learn when you're navigating change. Because when you're navigating change, there is a tendency that in that season of change, for your focus that maybe you have on Christ to be lost. That, that's what happens in seasons of change. So in February, we announced to our church uh, in Kearney, which is Kansas City, where we were, we were serving, that, that we were leaving, and we were going to be coming to Schweitzer in Springfield. That was the last weekend of February. And uh, through March, we had to deal with that, that change that we had announced. It wasn't just like, hey, everybody, I'm leaving, business as usual. No, like, Things had to be addressed, and you know, conversations had to be had, and it was, it was turbulent. And I remember there was this one day, it was, it was early March, and I was sitting in my office, and I was thinking about this change and all the things that were happening, and it was one of those just, it was just March. You know what I mean? It was just it was windy. It was cold. It was like, I don't want to go outside at all. It was just March. And I, I just had this just realization that in the middle of this change, it's like, man, this change feels like March. Sometimes when you're in the middle of it, it just, it's windy and it's cold and, and the season of change is just so turbulent. And, and when you find yourself in that turbulence, it is so easy for your focus, for your focus to change, for your focus to become uh, on, on other things other than on Christ, the only one who's going to satisfy you. And so Paul, let's say with him, he's in a season of change. He's in a Roman prison. He's writing to these folks. He's, he's reminding them of, of the greatness and the supremacy of Jesus, how he is the only one who's going to satisfy them. And here's what he says next. Let's keep reading here to verse 12. Listen to this. He says, not that I've already obtained all this. That is this, this total focus on Christ, this total thing that Christ is going to bring in my life. Not that I've already obtained all this or have already been arrived at my goal. He says, but I I press on, pay attention to these words, I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and, listen, straining towards what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. He's like, I, I got all these things that are distracting me. I got all these, these turbulent emotions. I got all these changes that are taking place in my life, but I'm just going to press on for what it is that God has for me. I'm going I'm to strain ahead for that. I love Philippians 3. And I also love this because do you know what he's talking about here? Do you know the metaphor he's getting at? This is press on and straining ahead. He's describing a race. That's what he's talking about here. That's what he's describing, which is a, a common thing in the Bible. 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 9. Another place that kind of talks in the same way. Paul writes, very similar, he says, uh, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Like, focus, strain ahead, push towards what it is that you want. 
Uh, don't get distracted by everything around you, but go towards what it is that you want in your life. Or here's another example, Hebrews 12. Uh, Paul didn't write this. We don't know who wrote Hebrews, but another very similar idea about how you have to focus in these races. He says, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author, the pioneer, I learned his author, the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith. It, it takes focus. If you're going to live a life for Jesus, if you're going to live in a relationship with Jesus, it takes focus, much like it takes focus to run a race. Last summer, I very reluctantly signed up to run a marathon. 26.2 miles. Let that sink in for just a second. 26.2 miles. I've been a runner most of my life. I ran track all through high school. I went to college on a scholarship to run track, and that's been part of my life for a long, long time. But I have never wanted to run a marathon because that's for crazy people. So it's never on my radar whatsoever. Like, my brain worked right, so I didn't want to do that. 26.2 miles. But some folks in my church, we signed up to run either the half marathon at Kansas City Marathon or the full one. And we did this together because we partnered with an organization called World Vision, which is a, a very large um, Christian humanitarian organization. And all of us who ran, we were, we were raising money for, for clean water for folks in Africa. So I was like, all right, I mean, I guess I have to now. These other people are going to do it. And how do you not help people get clean water? So we... We raised money while we were doing this, and we ran this marathon, and we trained all through the summer, and, and then came this, this fall day in October, we ran the Kansas City Marathon, and, and as I finished the marathon, here's my exact words as I finished, 26.2 miles. I'm going to quote myself verbatim. That was so fun. <laughs> like everyone else who finished around me had some sort of combination of four-letter words, but I said, that was so fun. It was like this euphoric kind of experience for me because I had this goal and I set it and I ran and I, we had this, like just this, this pride kind of thing of, I can't believe we did this and high five and everyone around. It was just, it was incredible. It was like one of the highlights of my year was, was finishing that race and it was just so incredibly rewarding. So I signed up for another one. Six months later, this one's in Olathe, Kansas. Turns out Olathe, Kansas has more hills than you think it does. And, and the word I would use to describe that race was not euphoric. What's the word I would be looking for here? Um, awful. That's the word I would look for this, the second marathon, 26.2 miles. It was awful. Uh, I got to 19 miles, and I was doing really, really good. But sometimes you've heard runners talk about a wall. Well, sometimes you hit a wall, and sometimes the wall hits you. And I got hit by the wall hard. And 19 miles, think about that. That's like a long ways, but you still have seven miles to go. And I got hit by the wall, and, and I started to slow down. I'm running with, with this friend of mine, and uh, he's encouraging me, and, and we start running slower, and then we start walking, and then, and then I just sit down at some point, and paramedics literally come running over to me to see if I'm okay. Is he, is he going to survive? Like, I, I got this, I got this. We, we get back up, and we walk and run and sit some more for the next seven miles. And, and I, at one point, I just tell him, hey, I'll tell you where my truck is. Just go get it, and I'm just going to lay here in the grass. You just come and get me. Actually, Full disclosure, I said that a bit more graphically than I did this morning because it was 26.2 miles. It was awful. And you're just trying to get there, and, and it's just awful, awful, awful kind of experience. And, and yet I, I kept going. He kept telling me, hey, your kids are at the finish line. You have to finish. It's like, oh, my goodness. All right, I'll, I'll have to finish. One foot in front of the other for 26.2 miles, and I finally finished. 
Oh my goodness. And I got the medal and I was so proud of myself because I finished. And, and I loved to think of those two races side by side because both races, they had the same outcome. I finished both of them. One race was euphoric. It was still hard. Like 26.2 miles is never easy. But I finished and, and I was enjoyable in a, in a kind of twisted way, but, but I liked it and, and I was proud of myself and I finished with strength and courage. And then there was this other race that everything fell apart and I struggled to finish. And it w if it hadn't been for someone else, I don't know that I would have finished. I wanted to give up. It, it was just everything I had to just keep pushing one foot in front of the other. And, and, and if it hadn't been for my friend, I, I know that I would have just sat down and, and, and quit. And I, I love to set these two things side by side because while you can finish strong sometimes, uh, other times you're just limping across the finish line. While, while it can be euphoric sometimes, sometimes it takes every ounce of strength and effort you have to get there. And both of these, these marathons took an extraordinary amount of focus and effort to do it. About 18 weeks of training, running every single day, weekly long runs. I mean, an extreme amount of focus to get there. And I just, I love to set these two things side by side because I realize this is life. There are times in life where maybe it's not easy, but it's enjoyable. And then there's other seasons of life where it's working to put one foot in front of the other just to keep going. This is Paul. I strain toward what's ahead. I strive toward what it is. I'm gonna forget what's behind me. I'm not gonna focus on that distraction of what was. I'm gonna press on towards what God has in front of me. Maybe it's easy or maybe it is that I'm limping across the finish line and I just want my buddy to go get my truck for me. I don't know what it is. But, but whatever it is, I'm going to strive towards what is ahead. This metaphor of what this, this looks like is, is what happens in life and how we navigate change. It takes an extraordinary amount of focus if you're going to navigate change in a way that fills your life with Christ. One of the lessons of pastoral ministry that I learned very, very early on was there was, there was very little that I could do as a pastor. I probably learned this like week two of being a pastor. Like there's very little that I can actually do as somebody's pastor. There's very little that I can accomplish. There's very little that I can achieve for them. I, I, I learned that it's, it's impossible for me to cause someone else to grow. It's impossible for me to cause someone else to, to be strong in Christ. It's impossible for me to cause that for somebody else. The most that I can do is help somebody realize that they have to cultivate that on their own. Because here's the truth about spiritual growth and living for Christ is that spiritual growth doesn't happen on accident. Being focused on Jesus Christ doesn't happen on accident. Filling your life with Christ, who will satisfy you beyond anything that you'll find anywhere else, friends, it doesn't happen on accident. It's not just going to happen to you that your life becomes filled with Christ. Rather, it is a way that we live and develop and cultivate things in our life that do lead us towards striving and achieving what God has for us. Philippians 3 is this challenge to us of what are you chasing after? Of what are you seeking after? What are you cultivating in your life? What, what are you pursuing in your life? And, and are you pursuing the things in your life that God is going to use to grow you? Are you pursuing the things in your life that God is going to use to cause you to be the kind of person who's filled with Jesus? 
And so I've learned early on in my, in my ministry that uh, there's a few things that if we can return to them often, God is going to use those things to grow us. Things like developing and spending time with God's Word. Things like trusting God with every detail of our life in prayer. Things like putting the details of our life constantly back in His life. And if I can continue to offer that to people, this is what over time is going to develop them into becoming the kinds of people that even when the turbulence of life starts to blow, even when the, the change and the seasons of change are upon us that would easily distract us and, and take our focus away, we can be the kinds of people who stand strong because we've cultivated something deeply within us. And so this morning, I, I just want to offer to you some, some simple thoughts that as you reflect on your life, maybe there's some of you here who, first of all, don't even know what it is to have the greatness of Jesus in your life, and, and you filled your life with all kinds of other things, and you realize that those have left you, left you empty. Maybe this morning is a chance for you to return to that, to receive what he has for you. But for others of us, I, I just want us to consider what have you been cultivating in your life? And, and maybe God is calling you to, to return to him, to start to cultivating deeper things. Maybe to spend time in the scripture, maybe to spend time in prayer, maybe to, to, to rework your finances, to, to spend time how you serve other people. I, I don't know what it might be, but, but as you think about what it is you're cultivating in your life, are you cultivating the kinds of things that, that God is going to use to let you be focused solely and squarely on him through whatever season of change might come in your life? Because the truth is that when Jesus fills your life, there is nothing that will ever compare to that. Amen.